Here's a few quick notes about the show. Southern Girl Crime Stories is a podcast focused mostly on lesser-known true crime cases, consisting of cold cases, soft cases, identified Jane and John Doe's, along with missing persons and murder victims. You can follow the show on social media, on Instagram at Southern Girl Crime Stories, on Twitter at SG Crime Stories, or search Facebook for Southern Girl Crime Stories. Please be sure to check out my YouTube channel for these stories along with photos of victims, suspects, locations of murders, and more. Jepsy Amiga Kalunji, who lived in the Philippines, decided to move to Colorado Springs after meeting and falling in love with 36-year-old Dane Kalunji. They made plans to marry after meeting on a dating website, but their relationship was far from perfect. Even though Jepsy's mother, Margie, lived in Hong Kong, the two remained in close contact and spoke almost three times a week via Facebook Messenger. On March 20th, 2019, Margie had no idea this would be the last time she would ever speak to her daughter again. That same day, Renee received a message from Jepsy saying, You're a real person, which she found very concerning. She then asked her if she was okay, but strangely never heard back. After the message, Renee contacted Dane, who told her that Jepsy had left between 11 p.m. and midnight after the two got into an argument and he believed she was going to visit friends in either Chicago or the Philippines. Margie had also contacted Dane, who told her the same story. By April 4th, when Renee had still not heard from Jepsy, she called the Colorado Springs Police Department and asked them to conduct a welfare check. However, they were also unable to make contact with her and opened a missing persons case. Investigators found that the couple had filed for divorce in October 2018, but were still living together around the time she disappeared. A few days after she went missing, Dane up and moved to San Diego, California. In April 2021, Dane's ex-wife, Elaine, would secretly record conversations between them and call him admitting to killing Jepsy. He told her that he put her body in the trunk of his car and buried it in an unspecified rural area in Teller County, Colorado. In June, after returning over the recordings to authorities, Dane was arrested and charged with first-degree murder. Investigators believe he strangled her during a domestic dispute. In February 2023, Dane was convicted of first-degree murder and tampering with the deceased human body. He was sentenced to life in prison without parole for the murder and 10 years for the tampering charge. As of June 2023, investigators continue to search for Jepsy's remains. Michelle Kanotik was born on April 15, 1964, and went by Shelley. She was the eldest of three siblings and was raised by a mentally ill, alcoholic mother who left when she was only six years old. This caused Shelley a lot of trauma during her early life, and it wasn't long after her mother left that she began torturing her younger brothers. Her brother Paul struggled with impulse control and lacked social skills, which made their situation even worse. Chuck, on the other hand, was very quiet and generally allowed Shelley to speak on his behalf. After their mother left, they were put in the care of their father, Les Watson, and his new wife, Laura Stallings. 
Les was described as a charismatic and prosperous business owner, while Laura embodied the captivating beauty often associated with 1950s America. However, Shelley deeply resented her stepmom, Laura, and made her feelings abundantly clear, frequently expressing her intense dislike for her. When Shelley was 13, she discovered that her mother hadn't actually abandoned them as she believed, and was instead beaten to death by her boyfriend. At the age of 14, Shelley failed to return home from school one day. Her father and stepmother called the school and discovered that Shelley had been placed in a juvenile detention center after her behavior had become increasingly worse. She had been accused of stealing, starting fires, and even putting shards of glass in other kids' shoes. At some point after leaving the detention center, she moved in with her grandmother. However, it wasn't long before Shelley left and eloped with a man she was dating, but the marriage wouldn't last. After getting a divorce, she would marry once again, but this marriage would end the same way. After those two relationships, she met a Navy veteran and construction worker by the name of David Konotek. They dated for five years before finally tying the knot. Shelley, along with her two daughters from previous marriages, 12-year-old Nikki and 9-year-old Sammy, moved in with David in his rural Raymond, Washington home. The couple then became well-known in the community for their generosity and welcoming of friends and family who were struggling in life. However, many of those visitors would often strangely disappear during their stay. In 1988, Shelley welcomed her 13-year-old nephew, Shane Watson, into her home after his mother could not care for him and his father was imprisoned. Soon after, Shelley began torturing Shane by making him stand outside naked in the bitter cold. She would then dump cold water on him. She would also make her daughter Nikki slow dance naked with Shane just so she could ridicule them. David didn't agree with what she was doing, but was too timid to stand up to her. Shelley's daughters weren't spared of the torture either. She referred to her discipline as wallowing, and she would do it for insignificant things like using the restroom without asking. Nikki and Sammy were frequently put in a dog kennel as punishment, and one day, she even smashed Nikki's head through a glass door. The year after marrying, her youngest daughter, Tori, was born. Despite all the brutality, Shelley would frequently shower her children with love, primarily to deceive neighbors. She also made sure that Nikki and Sammy were always nicely dressed for school. In December 1988, Shelley welcomed Kathy Loreno with her false optimism and tenderness, but soon started abusing her as well. Since Kathy had nowhere else to go, she was forced to suffer through the horrible torture. Shelley fed her nightly sedatives before forcing her to sleep near the basement boiler. Nikki commented on the mistreatment suffered by Kathy. Mom was punishing Kathy. She was ignoring us. As sick as that was, we were glad Mom wasn't doing it to us. The abuse continued for five long years, during which Kathy lost over 100 pounds. It finally ended in 1994, when Shelley brutally beat her to death. She then gathered David, Nikki, Sammy, and Shane in the lounge, and warned them that if anyone found out, they could all go to jail. She then persuaded David to burn Kathy's body and scatter her ashes on their lawn. If anyone inquired about Kathy, Shelley made up a story of her leaving town to start a new life. However, little did she know that Shane had a plan up his sleeve. 
He had shown Nikki some pictures of Kathy that he had taken of her while she was still alive, showing how severely starved she was. His ultimate goal was to show the authorities these pictures. However, in February 1995, David discovered Shane's intentions and shot him to death. Shelley also murdered Ron Woodworth, a friend of hers who moved in in 1999. The 57-year-old veteran had a drug issue, and Shelley began abusing him shortly after his arrival. She often called him an ugly lowlife who needed a steady diet of drugs and beatings to get his life together. He was even denied access to the restroom and made to go outside instead. One day, she ordered him to jump off the roof, which was two stories high. After jumping, he was left with serious injuries. She then doctored his wounds with bleach, and he eventually passed away. Shelley then told Ron's friends that he had left after obtaining employment in Tacoma. However, she was really hiding his body in the freezer before David eventually buried him in their yard. Their youngest daughter, 14-year-old Tori, had become aware of Ron's murder and contacted her oldest sister, Nikki, who had already left the home. After convincing Tori to collect Ron's belongings, Nikki took them to the police. In September 2001, Shelley was hired by an agency to help out James McClintock, a retired merchant crewman who was 81 years old. James then suspiciously wrote a will, leaving Shelley his home, his dog Sissy, and some of his money. In February 2002, Shelley called 911, saying that James had fallen and sustained a head injury. He was taken to the hospital, but would sadly die from his injury. While the police suspected foul play, they could never connect Shelley to his death. After this, Shelley's three daughters finally broke their silence and told authorities about the abuse and murders. They said their mother had forced guests to jump off the roof, starved, drugged, and tortured her victims, covered their open wounds in bleach, and had them drink urine. In 2003, as authorities were searching the property, they discovered Ron's buried body. On August 8th of that year, David and Shelley were finally taken into custody. David admitted to killing Shane and burying Ron's body. For shooting Shane, he was charged with second-degree murder and received a 13-year sentence. He was released in 2016, and his children have since forgiven him. As for the murders of Kathy and Ron, Shelley was accused of second-degree murder and manslaughter. She was given a 22-year prison sentence, but was shockingly released on November 8, 2022. This caused major outrage among the residents of the rural community. It's reported that she was released to an assisted facility in Seattle, but will remain under court-ordered supervision for at least a year. Janice Piatropola and Lynn C. Taylor were both born in 1954 and were sophomores at Penn Hills High School in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. The two girls had met at school and instantly became friends. They were both very popular and had many friends. In 1972, they both graduated high school and Janice became a secretary for the Urban Redevelopment Authority in East Liberty, while Lynn worked as a secretary for Dunn and Bradstreet Incorporated Shadyside. In June 1973, the two 19-year-olds left for a vacation and headed for a beachside cottage called Ferrars Motel at Atlantic Avenue and 10th Street in Virginia Beach, about a block from the Atlantic Ocean. 
eight people, including Lynn and Janice, were scheduled to go, but the other six backed out. The girls were reluctant at first to leave without their friends, but in the end, they ultimately decided to go. Farrar's Motel opened in the 1940s and had 30 units, including traditional motel rooms and one-bedroom cottages. The girls rented the first cottage closest to the beach for a five-day stay, checking in on Monday, June 25, 1973. During their stay, the girls enjoyed plenty of fun, hung out with other young people, visited local bars, and went on a few dates. They sent postcards to friends back home, writing, having a great time on each card, and took numerous pictures of their fun-filled vacation. Sometime between 11.30 p.m. on Friday, June 29th, and 1 a.m. on Saturday, June 30th, the motel's night manager saw the girls walk by the front office alone, heading south. The girls were set to depart that morning, but by noon, 25-year-old John Taylor, who was filling in at the front desk, noticed they had failed to check out or inform him of plans to stay longer. John knocked on their cottage door, but neither girl answered. He opened the door with a master key and peeked inside the room. He saw a foot on the floor and thought one of the girls was sleeping, so he shut the door and walked back toward the office. But as he walked away, he felt something was wrong and returned. John then opened the door again, but this time he went all the way inside and made a horrifying discovery. Both girls had been brutally murdered. He rushed back to the office and called the police. When the police arrived, they found Lynn's body on the floor by the door with her hands tied and Janice on the bedroom floor partially nude. Lynn had been strangled, cut with a shard of glass from a nearby broken wine bottle, and shot to death. Janice also suffered the same fate, but had also been sexually assaulted. Their possessions were found strewn and scattered around the room, but nothing appeared to be missing, so robbery as a motive was quickly ruled out. Investigators determined that their killer had accessed the cottage through a broken window. The girls had gone on a few dates during their vacation, leading investigators to theorize that the girls had been murdered by someone they had met and maybe even spent time with, but there was also the possibility that they were dealing with a complete stranger. Unfortunately, with little evidence and no suspects, the case would go cold for the next 46 years. Finally, in 2018, DNA from the sexual assault of Janice led investigators to an 80-year-old man living in an apartment for veterans in Queens, New York. The suspect was later identified as Ernest Brodnax, who was arrested and charged with one count of sexual assault and two counts of second-degree murder. He would have been in his mid-30s at the time of the murders and was originally from Virginia but later relocated to New York. Police looked into his criminal record and discovered that he had been incarcerated multiple times and had several other convictions, including weapon possession, trespassing, burglary, and assault. His neighbors in Queens didn't know him well, but said he was a volunteer at a local church food bank and admitted that they were aware of his struggles with alcohol addiction. Volunteers at the church saw him as a frail, older man and at times would give him light jobs and always ensured he had food in his stomach and clean clothes on his back. They described him with words like humble and kind and had no idea of the cruel and violent assault he mercilessly inflicted on the two teenage girls in 1973. 
After his arrest, a psychologist deemed him unfit to stand trial due to his dementia, and a judge agreed to send him to a psychiatric hospital for treatment. Several months later, a psychiatrist would finally find him competent enough to stand trial. However, the COVID pandemic hit, delaying the trial until further notice. Brodnax told the judge he just wants to get this over with. Regardless, the surviving victims' families would never see justice because Brodnax died in October 2022 at the age of 84. The cottage where this violent attack occurred has since been destroyed and replaced with new motels and shops. Sandra Renee DeFelice was born on May 28, 1955, in Moscow, Idaho. At the age of 25, Sandra was recently divorced and moved with her three-year-old daughter and a childhood friend to a home at 1505 East Bonanza Road in Las Vegas, Nevada. She then got a job as a waitress at Sambo's Restaurant. On December 26, 1980, Sandra's boyfriend and one of his friends came by to visit Sandra at her home and made a horrific discovery. They found Sandra lying face up on her bed, deceased. Investigators determined that she had been sexually assaulted, beaten, stabbed, and strangled to death. Thankfully, her little girl was not home when the attack occurred and instead was staying at her grandparents' house. DNA from under her fingernails and numerous dark hairs on her stomach were collected and preserved. Investigators initially looked at her roommate and ex-husband, but they were both quickly eliminated as suspects. Her roommate then told investigators about a suspicious man by the name of Paul Nuttall, whom she encountered on the day Sandra's body was discovered. She said she let him in for a glass of water while she was getting ready for work. She then found him standing in the doorway of Sandra's bedroom, watching her while she slept. He then asked her if he could stay at her house because he had nowhere else to go. However, she declined, noting that she was already living with Sandra, so she escorted him outside at 7.30 a.m. and left for work. At the time, investigators didn't have enough evidence to tie Nuttall to the murder, and the case would go unsolved for the next 42 years. In 2021, a DNA profile of the suspect was created and used for genetic genealogy. Lo and behold, the DNA linked right to suspect Paul Nuttall. In December 2021, police secretly obtained a DNA sample from Nuttall at his home in Las Vegas. After testing the sample, it matched the DNA found at the crime scene all those years ago. Officers also found a drinking glass in Sandra's home with a fingerprint that also matched Nuttall. The 64-year-old was then arrested and charged with the sexual assault and murder of Sandra. Paul had multiple arrests over the years, but none of those arrests were for violent acts. He abused drugs over the years and was even arrested three times between 2009 and 2011. One final note about this case is that the scene of the murder would later become a well-known Las Vegas landmark, especially for anyone making frequent trips up or down Bonanza Road. The Hells Angels Las Vegas chapter eventually acquired the property and turned it into their headquarters. Seventeen-year-old Charnel Huff and sixteen-year-old Marta Engelbrecht were best friends who attended Stella High School in Stella, Northwest South Africa, and shared a room together at the school. 
Charnel was dating a 19-year-old boy by the name of Xander Bilsma for over a year before breaking up with him. Xander was a recluse who had spent most of his time hunting wild animals and wasn't happy about the breakup. He told a friend he wanted to make her life miserable to the point that she would take her own life. On May 26, 2018, a drunk Xander left his group of friends and made his way to Charnel's dorm. The dorm, which is called a hostel in South Africa, was empty except for Charnel and her roommate Marna. Everyone else had gone home for the weekend. He then broke into the girls' room and knocked both girls unconscious. He then strangled both of them to death. Marna wasn't part of Xander's plan, but once she witnessed Charnel's murder, he felt he had to eliminate her as well. To deter any suspicions, he decided to stage the crime scene to look like the girls had taken their own lives. Charnel was hung from the staircase near her room, leaving her feet dangling just above the clutch of mountain bikes neatly lined up in the stairwell. He then placed Marna's body in the bathroom with a strap from a backpack around her neck. Not long after, the head of the dorm discovered the girls' bodies and called the authorities. The same day the girls were found, Xander told police that he got a call from someone saying that Charnel killed herself. He then claimed that out of despair, he took 10 tablets of medicine for anxiety, making him tired, nauseous, stressed, and drunk. He then admitted to the murders, but would recant his statement hours later, blaming his confession on investigators by saying they threatened to kill his family. He also said his confession was due to the side effects of his attempted overdose. However, an autopsy would reveal that the two teenagers were actually strangled to death. On top of that, Xander was known around town for having a horrible temper. Multiple witnesses then came forward and testified that he had wanted his ex-girlfriend dead because she broke up with him. After being arrested, he pleaded not guilty to the murders. In August 2020, Xander was given two life sentences. Charnel and Marna had a joint funeral to honor them because they were such close friends. Their parents said they were slightly comforted knowing they weren't going to heaven alone and would have each other. Thanks for joining me today on Southern Girl Crime Stories. Please be sure to check out my YouTube channel for these stories, along with photos of victims, suspects, location of murders, and more. As always, your support is very much appreciated, and I look forward to seeing y'all next time.